So as we dig into this text this morning, there's so much about the book of 2 Corinthians that we really need to understand a few elements of to understand what's going on, why Paul's writing, what he is writing, and then that will really help us to dissect these verses as we study them together. This book, 2 Corinthians, was regarded as the most personally revealing letters that Paul would ever write. He is sharing from a very personal experience as he is the one who has been dearly, severely offended. And he is issuing his statement of forgiveness and the desire for restoration. So this letter is a very personal one in revealing Paul's heart to the church at Corinth and then today to the reader in ourselves. There are multiple clues within the book of 2 Corinthians that helps us to see that this is not his actual second letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. There would have been a second letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians that he wrote to the church. But that letter did not meet the qualifications of the canonicity of the scripture being compiled together. And so why we hold this in our hand as 2 Corinthians is because it is the second letter written to the Corinthians that is put into the Bible. And there would, be, uh, there would have been in Acts chapter 18 the reference to the church at Corinth of uh, the church being planted by Paul. And so if you want to study that in detail at some point, Acts chapter 18 Paul plants this church, and then he leaves the church, and when he moves on from Corinth, Paul would get a report that not everything was going right at the church at Corinth. Some things started to happen, and they were happened pretty drastically. Some things, as you would study in the 1 Corinthians, you would find some of these instances, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when a man was caught into immorality with his father's wife and this was not being addressed or publicly announced and not being church disciplined or dealt with and so Paul would write this letter. Well there were many people that were recipients of this letter as the church at Corinth and and there were some mixed responses. Some would receive it well, the admonishment and the exhortation to handle the situation correctly. But then just like any other church, there were some who took offense to what Paul was saying and the, the legalistic attitude that Paul addressed these issues with. And so there were some who responded in a very negative sense and really rejected what Paul was writing, writing to them. And though there were some who did not respond well to this, we would find later in this letter, 2 Corinthians, that many of them would still come around, and we would find in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that many have found themselves to repent of the wrongdoing and looking for acceptance as well as forgiveness, and it was granted, as Paul would write here. So this sin that was done was a heart-wrenching sin, as Paul would put it, and the the repentance that was given was a being sorry according to a godly manner. It was not a, a sorry that I've been caught and now I have to do something about it. This was a, a true repentance in a godly manner of something that was heart-wrenching and needed to be dealt with. And so the section of verses that we come to today here in chapter number 2 is in reference to a situation that Paul had encountered when somebody had verbally and publicly assaulted him. We don't know what was said, how it was said, but in, in 2 Corinthians 2.1, we see that this visit would have been very heavy. He says, I don't want to come to you in this same way of heaviness again, or this way of a painful visit. And so, Paul is referencing to a moment when he had been verbally and publicly assaulted by somebody, and 
Paul instructed the church to handle the matter in such a way as to issue or administer church discipline toward the deliberate sin of this individual. Now, we don't know who this individual was. In this passage of Scripture, we would see in verse number 5, Paul would reference them with a generic term of, but if any. And then later in verse number 6, he would say such a man or such a one as this in verse number 6. So, we don't know who it was, but we do know what the offense was. It was a public and verbal assault toward the man of God, Paul. And it was one that was not shown any remorse or repentance And so Paul encourages the church at Corinth to deal with it publicly and to handle it biblically and to correct that with church discipline. So they did. The believers at Corinth handled it correctly. They did that which Paul was admonishing them to do. And Paul now is going to use these several verses in this section of chapter number 2 to help them to see the importance now of them as the church body issuing forgiveness to the individual who has done wrong so that they can be received back into the fellowship or back into the church body. And that's where we're at today. That's kind of what we, what we see here. And Paul is warning them so that Satan doesn't get the advantage over this individual. And notice in verse number five how Paul addresses this from a very personal viewpoint. Because, again, as the one who was targeted and wronged by the sinful individual, Paul emphasizes a deflection of pride. Pride in such a way that he, he did not have any uh, ego, he did not have any uh, justice in his mind. He simply wanted things to be dealt with so that remorse and repentance would take place and then reconciliation could happen. And so he emphasizes this deflection of pride from the heart of the one who has been wronged. And so, by the way, for all of us, when we have been wronged, the pride sneaks in and culture tells us to stand our ground and not to back away and don't issue grace. And certainly no ounce of mercy is to be given to the one who has been the offender. But Paul is going to make major emphasis here. In verse number two, he says, but if any have caused grief. Now, the word if there is, it comes as an absolute, not a conditional in this writing. In the original language, it would help us to see it because it's not as if it has happened, but is because it has happened, because it has taken place. This is an issue and it needs to be dealt with, and it was. And so Paul did not have a spirit of retaliation. He's just simply going to acknowledge the reality of the offense and the impact that it made on the local church. And so even though Paul's party, we'll call them, you remember Paul's party of men and people, or remember what was written in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul would address the church at Corinth, and he said, some of you are saying that I am of Paul, and some of you are saying I am of Apollos, and some I am of Peter, and some of you I am of Christ. And so when you think of those who are saying, well, I'm of Paul, so Paul's party, the people at Corinth. They were so highly offended by what had happened to Paul in the church that this public and abrupt and very attacking verbal assault was was taking place. For their fearless leader to be attacked and to suffer in that way, they might have thought that the offender needed more discipline from the church, that they needed more separation, more isolation, that they needed more penance in order for them to be restored into fellowship. The church has to be careful of that mentality. When we stiff-arm the people, then that's our mentality. We say, well, 
if I see in a little bit of more penance in their heart, I think if they're just isolated a little longer, we might see some change. We see more genuine change in their life. Paul's going to help them to see that that's not what is the intent, intention here. This individual has been repentant and he needs to be restored. And that is why Paul starts with this major header per se in this text that says, I am not bitter, I am not resentful, I'm not looking for revenge on this one who has insulted me. And so with that thought, he moves into the caution and warning in this text and he is going to give admonition to the church to forgive and to keep Satan from getting an advantage in the church. And so let's take note at these pieces of warning that he gives. He says, don't let Satan get an advantage. And how do we do that? Verse number six, he addresses it. He says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. And so verse number six, we see in order for Satan not to get the advantage in the church, we must extend mercy. The punishment that the church had issued toward the sinner was sufficient, as Paul has said. The word punishment is the idea of a formal expression or act of rebuke that was done by a majority. This would have been a formal act of church discipline, though we collectively have not in the last several years studied in detail the steps of church discipline. We know that the importance of purity and holiness within the church, and it means that a fallen brother needs to be rebuked and needs to be confronted and needs the opportunity for repentance and forgiveness so that restoration and reconciliation can happen. So no one likes for this brokenness to last forever. You know what it's like to be in the hot seat in whatever situation. Scott was talking about just a few moments ago, the early uh, uh, newlywed years or months or for some of you minutes. I don't know how, how long it lasted, but the, the peace in the storm and that it didn't matter what came your way. You would waver it together. You would go through it together and then somewhere along the way, the familiarity came, and some of us, or many of us, have been in the hot seat before. We've been the one that has abruptly said something we shouldn't have, or done something we didn't think through very wisely. And we know what it's like to be broken, and we also don't want that to last forever. We don't want to wake up the next morning knowing that we thought everything was cleared up and re reconciled, only to find that the individual is still holding something over our head or holding something to our account, or waiting to see if I will do something to earn the reception back from them. And so here the individual has suffered enough, and now it was appropriate for mercy to be extended and restoration to be given. With the negative vibes that are hanging over our heads, the heaviness is in our heart. We don't want to keep going through that, just waiting to prove ourselves, to build enough trust. And Paul says, it's been sufficient. And he says it came from of many. Notice that. That does not give us the idea of an amount of people, but rather the description that it was done by the majority of people. So the majority within the church at Corinth would have been unified in understanding that this offense had to be dealt with. Now again, we don't know the offense and the detail of what it would be like. I mean, some of you are thinking, man, I, I know of people in here who have verbally, publicly assaulted me. And you're thinking, man, can we bring them up for church discipline? I wouldn't mind excommunicating them or disfellowshipping with them. All right, so we don't know to what extent this was done, but we do know it had to have been severe enough that Paul would have encouraged the church and admonished them and exhorted them to issue this separation, this church discipline. And the majority agreed. 
And so with the majority that agreed to issue that, they also have to be the same majority that are going to be willing to extend mercy and willing to receive them back. It was not new for Paul. Paul would handle this issue all throughout his ministry. Again, as I mentioned in the 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he had to deal with a very sticky situation within the church. When you study the other epistles, the other letters that Paul wrote, Galatians 6.1, he said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Isn't that an important truth for all of us to remember? The meekness, the forgiveness that needs to be extended to others. He says, be careful, lest you think that it wouldn't happen to you, because it will happen. Don't become so prideful that you think, well, I'll never be the one who's the offender. I would never be the one in the hot seat. I'd never be the one that needs to be approached. I'd never be the weaker one. I'd never be the one that's overtaken in a fault. But remember, that haughty spirit is what becomes your downfall, the very beginning steps of you crumbling at the core, which you thought would never happen. Then he issues in Ephesians, he writes to another church of believers, and he says, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And then he issues to the church at Colossae in chapter 3, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now, we've been talking about steps of holiness or being different from the world and becoming more like Jesus Christ. Here's a step of holiness for us. Show forgiving mercy to a repentant sinner. Show forgiving mercy to a repentant sinner. And you know what that looks like? That looks like what just Paul wrote about. Not thinking that you're any better or that they have something to prove. It's giving them forgiveness like Jesus gave you. And Jesus didn't hold a string. He didn't hold anything attached to it. He just simply said, here it is. And is the reference I quoted from 1 John 1, 9 in my prayer this morning, that he simply says, if we, conf if we confess, he will forgive from all of our unrighteousness. So then he addresses this, that we would extend mercy. Verse number 7, he continues and says, So that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. So he says, reinstate joy. You know, when David confessed his tragic sin with Bathsheba, he recognized the harsh reality that sin always steals joy. It was a very harsh reality for David. David would write psalm after psalm of joyfulness. He would play the harp to soothe the animosity in King Saul's heart. David was a very joyful individual. He had ups and downs, but he knew that the harsh reality was sin always steals your joy. So he would beg God, he would pray to God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He would want this to be removed from him. And as soon, he soon discovered that this confession and repentance restored his joy. So how about you? How about me? Known sin in our life always steals joy. You ever wonder why you just can't find anything within you to be joyful and happy about, to rejoice and to be positive about? Maybe it's known sin in your life that is stealing away that joy. Sorrow plays a crucial role in the process of repentance. So search your heart through the sorrow to find that it is a tool and an aid to bring you to 
repentance. Since some of Paul's party, remember 1 Corinthians 1, the group that said, I am of Paul. So some of his party still believed that the individual should suffer some more. And that's why Paul says, so that contrary-wise, contrary to what you guys believe, contrary to what you're, you're holding to, uh, the total opposite. He's trying to get their attention, and he says, instead of thinking like you are, you ought to forgive and comfort him. So both of which will quickly reinstate joy and eliminate sorrow. If you have children in your home, you know what that's like, or you've ever had children, and you know what that means to reinstate joy within the home. There's been some conflict, there's been some, some problems, there's been some known sin, rebellion, rejection of what is right over what is wrong. And when you know that that's there, the reinstatement of joy comes with some sorrow, there's some moments of sorrow. It's okay for a child to have to go through their own moments of sorrow. Parents don't break, don't give in. It's okay for them to, to deal within their own conscience and with their own heart that they have committed sin against God. They don't have to be bouncing off the walls and excited every moment of the day. When they have done sin and wrong, they need to be sorrowful over what they have done. Not because they've made mommy upset or daddy infuriated. Not because of any of that or the response or anything that's been taken away from them. Their sorrow must come from the reality and fact that they have done wrong and sinned against God. And you let them sit on that. You let them think on that and you guide them through that process. From the age of four, five, and six years old all the way to your teenager, you let them feel the sorrow because sorrow will bring steps of repentance. And when that true repentance comes, there is a complete change within the heart. And all of a sudden, a true reinstatement of joy comes back into that life. If you deal with an individual, a child or a teenager, and they're forced to repent and find some type of form of forgiveness, there's not going to be a reinstatement of joy because they haven't faced sorrow over their wrongdoing. And by the way, adults, we're the same way. Don't look for an easy out. Don't look for an escape route. Don't look for a soothing ointment that will help you to feel better about the wickedness within your heart. Allow moments of sorrow to guide you to that moment of repentance. And then when that repentance comes, you will find great forgiveness and comfort. We cannot set subjective limits on our grace and mercy that we extend to people. We cannot say this, well... If they meet my criteria, or we may try to say, if I have a good feeling about this, then I will do A, B, and C. No, Paul says, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive him and to comfort him. Now, the church family, you're familiar with this word comfort. We've studied it before. We've, we've looked at it in detail before. This is the Greek word for parakaleo. It's to come alongside. It's to come and strengthen. It's to, it is to uh, encourage somebody. And so it's to partner up with somebody and walk through life together. That's the kind of comfort. It's to sit face to face, knee to knee, and weep with somebody. It's to pray through journeys with people. It's to ask questions. It's to have conversations. It's to go through moments together, encouraging, strengthening, and coming alongside of them. So we've all experienced that before. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and what Paul wrote 
in his way of thanksgiving to God, he says, blessed be, in verse number three, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's the same word in chapter number two, verse seven. He says, who comforteth us? Who's that who? Circle who? Draw a line, circle God. That's God and who are connected together. God comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God or of God. So parakaleo is used all throughout verse 3 and 4. So when you see that, think about encouragement. Think about coming alongside somebody to to strengthen them. Many of you could give the story that you have been comforted by God. You have been encouraged. You have been strengthened. You have seen him come alongside of you. And now you have the privilege to do that to other people who go through the very same thing that you've had to face. Whatever that tribulation looked like, whatever that trial was, the reality was that it was harsh and it was real to you. And when you came through that, seeing God as your comfort... Now you become that extension of God's comfort to other people. And so this comfort is a beautiful thing. John MacArthur said, after sorrow has done its convicting work, it is to be replaced by joy. Maybe we become the resource of reinstating joy to those who are the offender. Then verse number 8. In verse 8 he says, Wherefore I beseech you that we, ye would confirm your love toward him, And so here we engage love. It's interesting here how Paul urges an engagement of love to the fallen and the repentant individual. Last week when we saw that love was the superglue that binds a forgiving spirit to a believer's heart, it's so important to see how the two go hand in hand together. Paul uses the word confirm here in verse number 8. He says, I beseech you that ye would confirm, give evidence affirm your love toward him. This word conform is only used one other time in the Greek New Testament, so it's only twice that it is used. And when it is used one other time, it's in Galatians 3.15, speaking formally of approving a covenant between someone. And so this affirming, this confirming of your love is as if you are affirming a covenant, an agreement with somebody. then it's important because Paul is urging the ones who have made a public and official move against the offender to now make a public and official restoration to him and then restore them into the fellowship of the church. He tells them to give a definite expression of love. Some churches are so good at extending discipline and kicking people out and telling them to hit the curb, hoping that they'll make it out all right and hope their life will get figured out. But oh, is the church that would be warm and welcoming to receive them back so quickly that says, we're here every step of the way. We want to know that we're behind you and we want restoration. We want you to see clearly that God loves you and we love you through Jesus Christ. And though you have offended the name of Jesus Christ very deeply, and though you have blemished the purity of God's church, We desperately want to see your life and heart changed so that we might engage love and see restoration again. So the love that he speaks of is one that is full of action and void of sentimental feelings. 
Wives, you know what that means. When your husband tells you he loves you, you hope to see action supporting that, not just some sentimental feeling. Of course, some of you are saying, well, I heard it 25 years ago. I wouldn't even care if it was just a sentimental feeling, if he would just tell me he loves me again. Oh, weary to that man who thinks that way. But the truth is, is that here it's the full of action behind it that says, let's move forward, let's do something about it. By the way, love is essential in the life of the church. If a church is not, is not oozing with love, if the church is not functioning with love, woe to that church. That church is not functioning in the way it's been called to do. And so without forgiving loving, without a forgiving love, a church is torn, split, and fragmented. And one Bible scholar put it this way, the greatest demonstration of love, both by individual believers and the church collectively, is forgiving others. So you say you love God, and you may even let that trickle down into your life and say that I love people, but are you forgiving to others? If you think back at this past week, there were a lot of people who probably offended you, some who wronged you, and some who did it surface level and some who did it deeply. But are you harboring the bitterness and contention from what is your experience from this last week, and you're holding on to it, and you're rehashing it, and you're remembering it? And all you want to do is think back at that moment and then hope that they're in some, in some worse condition than you are when the reality is probably they don't even know that they've offended you or wronged you. And so here we're motivated by this engagement of love as a church and as collective believers. Then verse number nine, he anticipates obedience. He says, if we're going to keep Satan from getting the advantage there has to be an anticipation of obedience by the church. And he says, for this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you were obedient in all things. And so this is so important because Paul wrote strongly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, very strongly. If you're not familiar with the text, mark it and read it sometime. Paul comes through loud and clear about how the Corinthian church was blemished by the acts of this individual and how they were not doing anything about it. And Paul came very clear through that letter. And so now Paul is testing the church again. Would they take the steps of obedient, telling them to show love to the repentant brothers? Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to be obedient in all things, not just the fact that we've got a church discipline and, dis, and disfellowship and excommunicate and disconnect and have nothing to do with this individual. Some people are eager and ready to do that, but he says, will you be the church that does both? Will you be the church that follows through and is eager for restoration, even searching for restoration, even willing to do what it takes for restoration? So some can find it very natural to be swift, but others must need to find it in their heart to be merciful and forgiving. When you look at what, Paul, uh, what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 3 and 4, he said, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, he says, thou shalt think about it. 
No. He doesn't say, thou shalt wait to see if it's real. He doesn't say, have a long discussion, because seven times yesterday and seven times today, I mean, really, come on, dude, are you serious? That's not Jesus' response. He says, if they wrong you seven times in a day, and seven times in that day they come back to you and say, I repent, he says to forgive them. Oh, that doesn't make sense, and I really don't even like to think about that. I'm closing up and leaving for the day. Who's with me? But the truth is, is that's what Jesus said, and that's what he's commanded. And so when Paul had put the church at Corinth to the test to see if they would both discipline and forgive, we are thankfully seeing that they did. They did the difficult task of confronting sin head on, and they graciously forgave and restored the individual. So out of the chaos and confusion of their turbulent past had come an obedient church. If you will study what the church at Corinth looked like, it was a pretty rough going. This was a church that as soon as Paul left, it began to crumble. This was a church that had wickedness in it. This was a church that was hurting. But now we come to this second letter, and Paul is saying that in chapter number 7, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 15, he is talking about how he has sent Titus to them, and he is so thrilled and excited and refreshed in his spirit what Titus has heard. In verse 14, I have boasted anything to him of you. I am not ashamed, but as we speak all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. It is real. What I told Titus he would find in you, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you and all things. Wow, very contrary from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Study the Corinthian church and see their story and journey. They did the hard thing and confronted sin, but they also did the obedient thing and forgave and restored. In verse number 10, in verse number 10, we see this restoration of fellowship. He says, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it, and I forgave it in the person of Jesus Christ. What is the ultimate goal of church discipline? Not for someone to suffer, not for someone to face justice, not to have vengeance or shame put on them. The goal is restoration, a renewed fellowship, a restored partnership. Something that can be learned from. It's a bump, it's a bruise, it's a blemish, but it can be worked through. And God can be magnified and glorified through it. And notice three important parts to this verse. Paul says, first of all, I forgive. He demonstrates his true humility. Remember, this was a very personal attack on Paul. This was a public verbal assault on Paul. And he gathers his troops together and says, guys, listen, yeah, we've we got to confront the issue. We've got to do church discipline. But when that moment comes that sorrow has done its work and repentance is given, hey, hey let's, let's, let's get rid of the pride in our own heart. I know I'm your fearless leader. And I know you say, I'm of Paul and nobody's going to cross our leader. I understand that, guys. He says, but let's, let's extend forgiveness. Let's be willing to say they're forgiven and restored. And so Paul says, I forgive. And then he says, I forgive for your sake. Understanding that other people are affected when we harbor bitterness, resentment, contention, and unforgiveness. So, so 
moms, who's being affected by, by your bitterness? Who in your home sees the harsh things that you do and the bitter things that you say? Hey, husbands, dads, who's, who's affected negatively because you're not willing to forgive a boss who crossed you and did you wrong? And all you can do at the dinner table is talk up and down one side to the other how bad and negative that individual is. Do you think your kids are really learning love through the eyes of Jesus Christ at that moment? Hey, when you get together as a family and you start ripping and battering toward another family member who's not there and not a part of that collection, you've got the outlaws, the in-laws, you've got the in-in people, and you've got everybody else. And so the, the, the words just keep flowing and everything keeps jabbing. Oh, yeah, you've been hurt. You've been crossed. They don't do things like you do, and you don't like them. You know what? That's your personal problem that you just need to take to God. But what good does your bitterness and your hurt do to affecting the other people around you? Does it show them the love of Jesus? So Paul says, I forgive, I'm retaking away my pride, and I'm doing it for your sake. If Paul had said, I can't believe this guy, he comes and repents, don't forgive him. He has no business being at the church at Corinth. That's the church I planted, and he dare cross my name publicly? He dare verbally assault me in front of my own people? No, Paul, if he had led in that way, he would have a group of people who would follow him in the same manner and say, yeah. You tell that guy to hit the curb. He can go to some other church. He can go somewhere else. He has no business being a part of this flock. But you see, Paul says, I forgive. And I forgive for your sake. And then he says, I forgive for your sake in the person of Christ, in the presence of Christ. He was aware that the Lord knew his every thought. The Lord knew his every word. The Lord knew his every deed. And he eagerly forgave the one who had offended him because Christ, in whose presence he constantly lived, had fully forgiven him. You think about Paul's story. You know Paul's story. And yet he stands in the presence of Christ each and every day knowing that the love and compassion of Jesus has forgiven him, how could he do anything less than extend forgiveness to those who have wronged him? So what is your excuse? What is my excuse? Well, you don't know my story and you don't know my history. That's fine. You know what the reality is? I don't. But I do know of a man who does. His name is Jesus. And he does know your story and he knows your journey and he knows what you've been through. And yet he still looks at us and says... Be willing to forgive as I have forgiven you. So Paul says, I forgive. I remove all humility. I forgive for your sake to be an example to you. And I forgive for your sake in the presence of Jesus Christ because he fully has forgiven me. Forgive so that you can too have a restored partnership. So Satan's goal, verse 11, his goal is to destroy God's church. You, me, the millions of, of followers all throughout this world. He literally wants to destroy us. And Satan wants to breed hatred, isolation, contention, and bitterness. But God wants so much to show mercy, joy, love, obedience, and this partnership. So don't be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Ephesians chapter 6. Know that he has tactics and he is out to destroy. Sin has to be confronted. Not so harsh and graceless and merciless that we push a brother and sister away forever. 
Paul emphasized that we, the church, must forgive and restore the repentant individual so to avoid Satan getting an advantage in God's church. Don't be ignorant of Satan's schemes and devices. The work of restoring those who repent is a true test of a church's love for the Lord. Did you hear that? The work of restoring those who repent is a true test of a church's love for the Lord. So together, let's avoid Satan's advantage. Father, this is your church. and We have been called out, set apart from the culture and the world around us. And as your people, we come together. We don't want to issue church discipline. We're not signing up for that and casting vision and hoping that that's around the corner. That's not what today's about. But the reality is, is that all of us have found offense. We've been hurt. We've been blindsided. We have been dealt with in a very harsh and negative way. And so what will we do with that? Will we find Paul's exhortation and warnings to the church at Corinth to be ours as well? Would we take those and personalize them? And take them not only just in a corporate setting or in a public setting as the church, but then as believers, as followers in you, that that we would see very clearly how important it is for, for us to extend this kind of forgiveness to those that we are harboring hatred and bitterness toward. That we would be willing to extend mercy and reinstate joy. That we would engage in love and anticipate obedience And ultimately looking for a restored fellowship, a restored partnership back with that individual. The stories are real and the stories are harsh. But you are the healer and the helper. You know what it's like to forgive those who are not worthy. (laughs) For we all stand in account to that today. So God, deal with our hearts as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.